It's good to be able to come together. I want to wish you a happy new year. And I'm glad that we have this opportunity today to worship the Lord on the first day of the year. What better time to come into the house of the Lord? I'm glad about it. It's a new opportunity for us this year to know the Lord and to grow in our relationship with him. We've got church going on today in our chapels and Fountain Hills at South Mountain Campus as well. Uh, also people joining us online. You should feel pretty good about yourself coming to church on New Year's Day. In the rain? We know who's living right. It's you. So feel good about that. And you can roll your eyes at your neighbors who aren't here today. Just a little bit. Um, I planned originally to get up this morning and just kind of encourage you briefly and, you know, that this is going to be a great year for you. But then uh, as I was thinking about the plan to take communion today, I started feeling led to teach on communion, which was really more than I originally bargained for. So I had to do more studying this week than I planned on. But Jesus is the boss around here, and what the big boss wants, the big boss gets. So... Some sermons are a little more preachy and uh, exhortation, faith building. Other sermons are, are more teaching, and that's what this is going to be today, a little bit more theological teaching. I want to talk about communion and hopefully help you to understand it better so that you're not just doing it without really understanding it and what it represents. The account of the Lord's Supper is recorded in three of this, the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic means same. And also in 1 Corinthians, it was a topic of frequent discussion for the early church fathers. And we don't talk about the early church fathers a lot. That would be the generations right after the the disciples, the early Christian leaders. And they weren't without their own errors because they were trying to figure things out as well. But the way that they practiced and thought about Christianity is insightful for us. It helps us to understand Um, And how Christians have been believing and practicing their faith for thousands of years. So we can read the letters of the early church fathers, people that lived just 100 years, 200 years after Jesus walked the earth, and see what they thought about their faith in Christ and how they practiced that as a church. So I'm going to start out in Matthew 26, if you want to turn there in your Bible. I'll also go to 1 Corinthians 11 in a little bit here. Or you can follow along on the screen where we'll have the scripture Here's what it says. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this is often called the Last Supper. It took place at the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread leading up to the Passover, which is when Jesus would be crucified. In this moment here, what is this? What's going on here? Uh, Some Christians call this the Eucharist. Catholics will often refer to it as the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. It's often called the Lord's Supper or Holy Communion. Some Christians call this a sacrament. Others call it an ordinance. In biblical religion or in Greco-Roman culture, every covenant was sealed or renewed by a solemn oath. And the Latin word for such an oath is sacramentum. That's where we get the word sacrament. 
the church fathers started referring to the Lord's Supper as a sacrament as early as the second century. Other Christians will call this an ordinance. Uh, and an ordinance you can think of as an ordinary practice. It's something Jesus told us to do. And so we do it regularly. And it's normal. At our church, we typically will take communion together once a month. But you could do this Anytime, honestly, you don't need a pastor to take communion. You could take it by yourself or as a family. You could just get some unleavened bread and some wine or some grape juice and have communion at home with your family. And that's a really cool thing to do. But as Christians, the the ordinances or the sacraments that are most important would be communion and baptism. So all Christians, you should get baptized in water. If you haven't yet, that's something you need to do. And you're going to end up taking communion as part of a a church family like this. If you're not a Christian, you shouldn't get baptized in water until you become one. And you also shouldn't take communion if you're not a Christian. But if you are, these are important practices for us. There was a lot of foreshadowing in the Old Testament that kind of paints a picture of communion before we really experience the Last Supper in Scripture. You go back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve and the tree of life. After Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree, there was a whole garden. And God said, there's just one tree I don't want you to eat from. And what did they do? They ate from that tree. That's human beings in a nutshell right there. So they're kicked out of the garden. They're denied access to the tree of life. And many church fathers saw the fruit of the tree of life as a type of prefiguration of the Eucharist, the body of Christ, which hung on the cross. Revelation 2.7 tells us that in heaven, God will allow us uh, as his people to eat the fruit of the tree of life again, which grants us eternal life. One church father, Hippolytus, wrote around the fourth century, This quote, I think, is cool. He said, so in place of the old tree, Christ plants a new one. For me, the cross is the tree of eternal salvation. From it, I nourish myself. From it, I feed myself. So this is really cool. The sin of the first man cost us access to the tree of life in the garden, but the perfect obedience of Jesus, the son of man, restored our access to eternal life Thanks to what he did for us on the cross, the tree of Calvary. Then let's talk about Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Melchizedek, it says, king of Salem brought out, look, bread and wine. That seems familiar, right? He was a priest of God, the most high, and he blessed Abram. This was a foreshadowing of Christ's priesthood who also offers bread and wine to his disciples at the last supper. Church fathers like St. Jerome talk about how the book of Hebrews refers to Melchizedek as a foreshadowing or a type of Christ who was without genealogy or beginning or end. So he kind of represents Jesus in the Old Testament in some ways. Just as he blessed Abram by bringing out bread and wine, Jesus blesses us with his body that was broken and blood that was shed, which is represented by the bread and the wine that we take at communion. Through the bread and wine, which which represents the sacrifice of Jesus, we as Christians, we receive an even greater blessing than Abram received from Melchizedek. So this is really cool. And then in Exodus, we've been in a series on Exodus at our church. I'm going to start back up with that series next week, and I'm going to talk about the law and how the different types of the law relate to you as a Christian today. 
Uh, And then the week after that, I'm going to start a series on the Ten Commandments and spend one week on each of the Ten Commandments. So that's going to be really sweet. Make sure you're here for that. But we talked about when the Israelites left Egypt, God gave them manna or bread from heaven in the desert. And it said in Exodus 16, God said, I'll rain bread from heaven for you. Jesus is the fulfillment of this. He calls himself living bread. In John chapter 6, he says this, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So there was a type of manna in the heaven that God rained down to provide for his people. And he's saying, your forefathers, they ate that supernatural, miraculous bread that God provided. And as good as it was, they still died. But here I am, he says, the living bread of God that also came down from heaven. And if you receive me, if you allow me into you, you'll live forever. Many of the early church fathers, they also believe that in the Lord's prayer, when you pray, give us this day our daily bread, that it is a reference to asking for a daily portion of Jesus, the living bread in our lives. So we receive Jesus as Christians by faith, the living bread, and he satisfies us and he nourishes us eternally. Then look forward at Moses after he receives the law of God. Moses, it says, took blood and threw it upon the people and said, behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So he received the law and then he sprinkled blood on the people. Aren't you glad when you come to church today, the pastor doesn't sprinkle blood on you anymore? Like receive this sermon, here's some blood so it'll stick. Okay, well that seems really weird. Let me just explain it. A covenant, in the Old Testament times especially, was sealed with blood. So you have to understand the difference between a covenant versus a contract. Contracts are initiated by the exchange of a promise, whereas covenants are sworn by solemn oaths. Contracts dictate the terms of exchanging property, saying, this is yours, that is mine. Whereas covenants involve the exchange of life, saying, I am yours, you are mine. The motivation for a contract is self-interest or to profit, whereas the motivation for a covenant is self-giving or sacrificial love. Contracts are temporary in their terms, whereas covenants are permanent, sometimes even intergenerational. So you can see why a contract might be sealed with something as simple as a signature, but a covenant, a higher level promise had to be sealed with blood. God made a covenant with Abram to bless him. And this was sealed with the bloodshed in circumcision. It was understood throughout human history that the marriage covenant, that's another type of covenantal relationship. Today we tend to treat marriage too casually But marriage is a covenant relationship, and it's been understood that it was sealed with the blood that was often shed in the act of consummation between, ideally, a virgin man and his virgin bride. If you don't understand that, ask your mom when you get home. I'm not going to explain it right now. Covenant language throughout the Old Testament was futuristic in nature, looking forward to what would happen, often described as a story in search of an ending. And covenant is why we divide our Bible into two parts, the old covenant and the new covenant. 
A lot of your Bibles will say Old Testament, New Testament, and that's common language, so we say that a lot, you know, back in the Old Testament. But covenant is a more accurate way to understand salvation before Christ and after Christ. Jesus uses covenant language as he institutes a new covenant with his body and blood as the new sacrifice. And he talks about this during the Last Supper in Luke 22. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Hebrews calls Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. And in Jesus, we experience the ultimate fulfillment of every good promise of the previous covenants made by God. So you can see the correlation between what Moses did and what Jesus did. There are different views on communion and what happens with the bread and the wine in communion, what it means for us and how we should understand it. So I want to talk about some of those different views. The first is called transubstantiation. And here's what it means. Trans means to change. Unfortunately, that's a prefix we're way too familiar with right now in our culture. And uh, substance, so it's to change the substance. Uh, So this is something that Catholics teach, and Catholics have taught this for some time. What they believe is that the bread and the wine, when it's blessed by the priest, literally changes into the actual body and blood of Christ, although it keeps the form of bread and wine. This is what they teach, that you just just need to believe that that's what it is. That's what's happening. Um, This is not true. This is not good teaching. I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about this, why that is, that it's not true. First, it would have been really weird for Jesus, who was a Jew and perfectly fulfilled the law of God. And the Old Testament law, it taught that we should not consume human flesh or drink blood. That was a Jewish law. So it would have been weird if Jesus was requiring his disciples who were good Jewish boys to actually drink blood and eat human flesh, even though, you know, maybe it was like a Jesus thing, but still it doesn't really make sense. Then you go forward from there. Catholics will argue that that has always been the teaching and belief of Christians. And that all the church fathers agreed this actually becomes the body and blood of Christ. You just need to believe it. And they'll say it wasn't until thousands of years later that Christians changed their position on this matter. And that's not true. Like many Catholic doctrines, they have taken scripture out of context and misrepresented what the Bible says. Like a lot of Catholic teaching, transubstantiation is false. Eh, try again. But I'm going to talk about it a little bit more here for a minute. So stick with me as we, as we teach through this. Catholics will take quotes from early church fathers and pull them out of context, misrepresenting what's said. I'll show you one quote from uh, guys like Augustine, Clement of Alexandria. This one's from Ignatius of Antioch. This this guy's really cool. Ignatius of Antioch was discipled by the apostle John. That's pretty cool, right? This guy lived around early first century, died in about 110 AD. um, Discipled by the apostle John. That's pretty cool. It's cool to have Pastor Ryan teaching you, but I would take the apostle John. Here's what he says, and and Catholics will use this quote like when they teach about transubstantiation. They'll say this. I'll read this here. Take note of those who hold heterodox opinions. That's 
an unorthodox opinion on the grace of Jesus Christ, which has come to us, and see how contrary their opinions are to the mind of God. They abstain from the Eucharist and from prayer because they do not confess that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior Jesus Christ, flesh which suffered for our sins and which that Father in his goodness raised up again. They who deny the gift of God are perishing in their disputes. Okay, so they look, okay, look, he just said it right there. Ignatius said it, it is the flesh of Jesus Christ that proves it. But there's more going on there than what we read on the surface level. During their earthly ministries, our our church forefathers, going way back to the earliest days of Christianity, guys like Arrhenius or Ignatius, this guy, they were battling against theological error in their day. And one of the biggest ones was docetism, which was a form of Gnosticism. And I want you to understand docetism. It's false teaching that all physical matter is evil and that Jesus never possessed a physical body, but rather that he only appeared to physically live and die, that he didn't actually physically rise from the dead. He just was a spirit being that looked like he had a physical body. This was a a common heresy that was being taught in their day. Just like today, we've got our own heresies being taught in certain churches and places. So these church forefathers, they were using language in their day, talking about the bread and wine, and they were emphasizing it as the body and blood of Jesus because they were mirroring Jesus's own words about himself as a way of arguing against the heresy of docetism. In other words, like if, hey, Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, it's because he had a physical body. And they were emphasizing this against the false teaching of their day. This is also what the apostle John wrote about in 2 John verse seven. He said this, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. There are still people today who hold Gnostic beliefs that Jesus wasn't a real physical person, but just a spirit, or that he didn't physically rise from the dead. He just spiritually rose. That is false teaching. The Bible warns us about that, and the early church fathers were fighting against that in their day. A generation after Arrhenius and Ignatius, another church father named Tertullian, he used the same type of argument against Gnostic heresy being preached by a guy named Marcion. However, he gave more detail and he expanded on it more, emphasizing how we should understand the Eucharistic elements, the bread and the wine. Tertullian said this, having taken the bread and given it to his disciples, Jesus made, his own, made it his own body by saying, this is my body. That is the symbol of my body. There could not have been a symbol, however, unless there was first a true body. An empty thing or phantom is incapable of a symbol. He likewise, when mentioning the cup and making a new covenant to be sealed in his blood, affirms the reality of his body, for no blood can belong to a body that is not a body of flesh. Again, Tertullian, he recognized that the elements themselves did not literally become the body and blood of Christ, but they were symbols which represent the physical body that Jesus actually had. The the, um, Didache, which is a writing from the late first century, 
that oftentimes recorded practices of the early church also refers to the bread and the wine as spiritual food and drink, not understood as the literal body and blood of Jesus. Here's a few more quotes from church fathers. We're just nerding out together on this stuff today. Clement of Alexandria said, the scripture accordingly has named wine the symbol of the sacred blood. A little side note, that was a big issue for them. They were emphasizing, hey, don't just use water. You should use wine or grape juice, I guess. Uh, Origen said this, we have a symbol of gratitude to God in the bread, which we call the Eucharist. Justin Martyr, he said, the bread, which our Christ gave us to offer in remembrance of the body, which he assumed for the sake of those who believe in him, for whom he also suffered, and also to the cup, which he taught us to offer in the Eucharist in commemoration of his blood. Just kind of reemphasizing, it was a symbol, it's to help us remember. Okay, so that was talking about the idea of transubstantiation, that the bread and the wine actually transform into the body and blood of Christ. Catholic priests will teach this, although Pew Research shows that two-thirds of Catholics don't even believe that. Not that that's the most important thing, but that's a false teaching. It's a false way of understanding communion. The next three options are more plausible. This next one uh, is often called consubstantiation or like with the substances. This was taught by Martin Luther. And this is that the bread and the wine don't actually change, but that Christ's body and blood come to be present with, in, and under the elements. So alongside them, often we'll use the analogy of a sponge that's holding water. You have a sponge and water, two different elements, but they're contained in the same space together. This is what Martin Luther taught. Then the third view is referred to as symbolism. This was taught by Ulrich Zwingli, a Swiss leader of the Protestant Reformation. He was a priest who left the Catholic Church and he corrected the teaching that priests should be celibate. He was one of the first reformers to get married. So he's a hero to me. He's one of my favorite guys. Thank God, right? Because I'm grateful for marriage and all that comes with it. He reestablished verse-by-verse expositional Bible preaching, believing that God's word would lead people to revival. This was a huge issue back then because so few Christians actually knew what the Bible said for themselves. He convinced the city council of Zurich to replace the Catholic mass with a new liturgy in 1525. And as a church leader in Zurich, his church only observed the Lord's Supper. They only took communion four times a year. That's interesting to me. But he disagreed with Martin Luther, and he taught that the bread and the wine, they're symbols. They're just symbols that help us to remember, but that Christ is not present in any special way. Then along comes John Calvin, and he teaches the view of presence. That yes, the bread and the wine, they are symbols, but they're more than symbols. And John Calvin taught that in the act of communion, we experience the presence of Jesus in a special way through the Holy Spirit, either by drawing us up into heavenly worship or by somehow bringing Christ down who descends to be with his people. And he admits like there's a mystery to this. We don't really understand it, but, but we experience his presence in a special way through the Holy Spirit. Okay, so which one's the right view? I would say probably the third or the fourth. So if you're somewhere in there, yeah, it's a symbol. Primarily, I think the bread and the wine, they're symbols, but they're more than symbols. 
And I would say anytime we worship Jesus, we glorify God according to his word with pure hearts, when we worship in spirit and truth, I think anytime we do that, we experience the manifest presence of God in a special way. Paul, when he talks about communion, it's his longest uh, quote of Jesus directly in 1 Corinthians 11. This is another passage that describes the Lord's Supper. I'm going to read this to you. He says this, for I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. Pause there. So the apostle Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples. You remember this? He at the time hated Christians. He hated what Jesus stood for and he was persecuting Christians. He later got saved after the resurrection of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him, knocked him on his high knee and converted him by the power of God. Okay. That's pretty cool by itself, but then to make things even cooler for the apostle Paul, Jesus personally instructed him and trained him for ministry. What I received from the Lord himself. In other words, he's saying, Jesus is the one who taught me what he said at the Lord's Supper. That's, that's just really cool to emphasize that. Okay, he says this, on the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Okay, now I want to point out this next part. This maybe is a part you haven't read. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. Watch this. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. This is not normal, not normally emphasized in your modern day 2023 seeker sensitive mega church. What is he talking about? There were people in the church in Corinth who were coming to church and some of them skipped lunch that day and so they were stuffing themselves on the communion bread. Other people came to church and they were getting drunk on the communion wine. And the apostle Paul is saying, you are drinking God's judgment on yourself. And people were getting sick and even dying because of it. And so what does this mean for us? There are people that come to church today all across America, and although they have sin in their life that they haven't repented of, they'll take communion like everything's fine, do do do, and they're drinking God's judgment on themselves. They're not honoring the body and blood of Christ, which was sacrificed for us. How do you take communion? Be like, oh yeah, thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sins. That was super cool of you. While you're living in unrepentant sin, like it doesn't even matter. That doesn't honor God. Now, here's a disclaimer, right? All of us sin in ways that we're probably not even aware of. 
through sins of omission or commission, things that we didn't do or should do. And so we should try to repent of sin to the best of our ability. There will always be sins in our lives that we're not really really aware of. You know, I should have been nicer. I should have been more generous. I should have had more faith. And so we trust the grace of God to cover those sins. But when there is sin that we're consciously aware of, we should confess it and repent from it, turning to God and righteousness. So an example might be, you know, you got a guy comes to church. He's been living with his girlfriend. They're sleeping together. They're not married. They're living in sexual sin. And then they take communion without repenting from their sin. And they're drinking and eating God's judgment on themselves. What's, what's going to happen to them? I don't know. But it didn't go well for these guys. <laughs> the church in Corinth. So I would recommend doing something about that. <laughs> Here's what he says in verse 31. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Okay, so I know that was kind of scary. You hear that? You're like, oh, I don't know if I want to take communion. But he says, no, 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 you don't got to worry about it. Just judge yourself. If you would examine yourself and say, hey, Lord, search me. Show me if there's anything in my life that I need to repent from today. And then if the Holy Spirit brings something to your mind, just confess that to God, repent of that sin, and receive the mercy of Jesus, which was bought for you. The grace of God was, was already paid for by Jesus on the cross. And you, you're reminded of that as you take communion. You're like, I'm forgiven because Jesus' blood was shed for that sin. I don't have to leave here with guilt because Jesus died for my sin. And then what he said in verse 32 was that when the Lord does discipline us, Scripture says the Father disciplines the Son whom he loves. When the Lord does discipline, sometimes God does, does allow us, you know, like to, to, to experience things the hard way. We have to learn the hard way sometimes. Anybody else beside me had to learn a lot of lessons the hard way? Whew! I learned too many lessons the hard way. And the Lord's discipline was actually meant to, to kind of get me back on path. On the path, right? The Lord disciplines the son whom he loves so that we won't be condemned along with the world to hell. It's better to be spanked by God in the short run and not go to hell in the long run. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) God's good to us. He's good to us. So you got to think about that before you take communion. You want to examine yourself and just say, hey, Lord, show me if there's anything in my life I need to confess to you. Okay, so we're going to summarize this now. I want to just emphasize the four-part meaning and purpose of communion or the Lord's Supper. First, it's a past reflection on Christ's suffering and death to save us from sin and death. It's us looking back on Jesus who allowed his body to be broken, his blood to be shed, so that we didn't have to pay the price for our own sins. When Jesus broke the bread and gave the wine during the Last Supper, he was making a priestly offering that changed his crucifixion from an execution to a sacrifice. And he sacrificed himself so that we could be free. So it was a past reflection, and that's kind of a somber part of taking communion. Then it's a present representation of our unity with Jesus and our fellow believers by faith. 
Okay, so we're somberly remembering what Jesus went through. And then, hey, right now I am reminded as I receive this bread and this juice, which represents the body and blood of Christ, that I am united with Jesus. He is in me and I am in him. And I'm also united with all you folks who's taking communion together. We're a church family because we're communing with our community. And so it reminds us like we should love each other, you know, be nice to each other, not judge each other. Like love one, be generous, help one another, do life together. We're like eating together. You break bread together. That's where we get that, that phrase. Third, it's a future facing anticipation as we look ahead to Christ's return and are encouraged by the promise of it. He talked about that, Jesus, until I return. I'm not going to drink from this cup again until it's with you in my Father's kingdom. It's looking forward to a future day with anticipation. And one day, as we take communion, it's not just looking back to the cross. We're looking forward to the return of Christ. One day, he's going to return. And all this craziness on the news, I'm not going to have to worry about it anymore. And sin and sickness and death, those things will be gone. I'm looking forward to heaven, especially as I get older. I'm looking forward to it more and more. Fourth, it's a joyous occasion to bring a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to show our gratitude for what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. God is present when we take communion, but it's not in the bread and the wine. Psalm tells us, Psalm 22, that God inhabits the praise of his people. So the Lord is present in the entire worship celebration of thanksgiving as we give him praise and as we lift him up with thankful hearts. It's interesting, I think, that when you read the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there are only two miracles that are recorded in all four Gospels. One is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a good one to record, a pretty big deal. The other miracle, only other miracle that's recorded in all four, who knows what it is? It's the feeding of the 5,000. I heard a few people like whispering it. The feeding of the 5,000. I think that's really cool. It shows that God approves of our Christian love of eating and potlucks. You know, I think, I think it might have been like the original church potluck. You could argue that. The feeding of the 5,000. In that story, right, there's a whole crowd listening to Jesus teach. Nobody brought enough food for the super long church service. And there was a little boy with a bag lunch. They took his lunch, fishes and loaves. Jesus held up the bread, blessed it, broke it, gave it to the disciples who handed it out. And by the power of God, it was multiplied and fed the whole crowd, thousands and thousands of people. Um, By the power of God, Jesus fed the 5,000. So why is that the only other miracle recorded in all four gospels? Well, I don't know 100% for sure, but I have a few theories One would be that it was a powerful representation of some even greater miracles that would happen. That Jesus, who was the blessed living bread, the son of God, would be lifted up on the cross. His body would be broken for us. And then through faith, he would nourish many, many people and bring spiritual life to those who believe. And over the years, down through generation to generation, this spiritual nourishment through faith in Jesus is spread and passed 
from thousands of people, generation to generation, across the entire planet. And we see how, how the Lord brings that kind of eternal life and spiritual nourishment to us still today through faith in Jesus. So I want you to understand this in closing. At the Lord's Supper, we're not marveling at a metaphysical change in the bread and wine. We are marveling at a supernatural change in the hearts of those who believe. How many of you know that God has changed me? God has changed. How many of you can say, I remember what I was like before I met Jesus. And the Lord has changed my heart. I can't take credit for it. It's not because I became a good person and got my act together. It's not because I just started going to church. But I put my faith in Jesus to save me. And he changed my heart. He replaced my heart of stone with a heart of flesh. That's the real miracle that we are celebrating when we worship and take communion together. And we're going to do that right now. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me and get your elements ready. And if you got missed on the way in somehow, you didn't get a serving communion, lift your arm, lift your hand up high. One of our service team members will try to bring it to you. You're going to have to hold it up for just a minute, though. Give them a second to find you. And there are two layers to this communion serving. You've got to open it up, get the bread out. Then you've got to open up the second layer. So first, let's go ahead and take time to examine ourselves before we receive communion. Thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken for us. Let's go ahead and take the bread. We thank you, Jesus, for the blood that was poured out for us that establishes the new covenant of grace between God and man. Let's go ahead and take the cup. In just a minute, we're going to have time to worship and celebrate and give God praise again. But I believe that God has great things in store for you and this is gonna be a great year for you and that you're gonna see the goodness of the Lord this year in your life. I believe God has great things in store for us as a church. The best is yet to come. Let's lift up the Lord today. Let's give him praise. Thank you, God, for what you've done for us. Thank you for the bread of life that we have received through Jesus. We give you praise and glory. God, we thank you for your love. We give you all the worship in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, let's worship.